Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, I'll be taking over Joe's episode today. For those who don't know me, I'm Dina Sargent. I'm the host of the Family and Parenting Podcast at LMSL. Now, when we talk about addiction, we usually have a conversation referring to how to stop the addiction or how it's affecting family members. What's usually not spoken about is how it started and what was the cause of the substance abuse. Traumatic experiences can sometimes be the reason for that need of distraction. Now, to help me in this conversation today is registered counselling psychologist, Sylvia Violante. How are you going today, Sylvia? Hey, good, Dana. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have an experience, uh, someone with experience on the subject. Now, to give a little background on yourself, do you mind sort of talking about how your work is relevant to what we're talking about today? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm a counselling psychologist. Um, I've worked in the substance use field over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all started as a little, oh, I don't know what to do on a placement and my yeah. feeling that I was in a rush of completing my psychology master's. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up working in the substance use, uh, more in the correction sort of field. So people who were coming out with uh, parole and uh, correctional orders um, after being in prison. Mm-hmm. And out of that, actually, I just ended up staying in the field. So I worked in prisons as my first um, job as a registered psychologist. Wow. Um, and then um, now I've been in the non-for-profit space for over eight years. So, yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, it's, it's incredible to see the prison. Like I hear a lot of people talk. I think I've got a couple of friends who work in the prison. Mm. One of them is a prison guard, one of them as a nurse in the prisons. And it's just the lifestyle that it is is very different to the outcome that sort of we get and the sort of health care that they get as well. As- yeah, totally. So, I mean, for me, it was very interesting now having seen both ways. Yeah. So obviously seeing all the hope and and sort of like a bit of the anxiety of what happens after you've been in a sort of safe space yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and sort of that challenge around transitioning into community. But then, when yeah, when I worked in prisons, there's definitely lots of challenges around how under-resourced um, it can feel. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people can be, um, I hate saying this, but it can't be actually quicker getting into prison and I know a lot of clients will love well this is my stable place where I get three meals a day and yeah. I'm detoxing from substances mm-hmm. than actually getting into detox in community which talks to me a lot about what we need to do in a policy point of view and for the government to sort of fund more of the state funded mm-hmm. um, residential beds um, and now sort of coming back to community I mean I had a bit of a realization I, I did it for a year loved it um, it's a tough environment as you said mm-hmm. um yeah, worked alongside, yeah, prison officers and nurses and other allied health professionals. And for me, it just 
as I was sort of discovering my journey, um, mm-hmm. yeah, my, my passion sort of lies more into what do I do in a more long-lasting, meaningful change in community. So, um, yeah, worked along uh, first sort of, yeah, sort of working with voluntary and forensic clients, then mm-hmm. working with family members, and then um, I've been close to five years coordinating a team of clinicians which um, de- deliver really high-quality service and a lot of the things that we see, which is relevant to the, this podcast, is substance use and trauma. Um, yeah. I don't think we ever see a client who does not have a trauma and yeah. Extent, yeah. Yeah, that is, it's really, for me, it's really interesting. And I'll say interesting throughout the whole show <laughs> because I've never personally seen the effects of trauma or the effects of substance use in people that I know, which is, um, a lot of people say it's great. For me, it's, it's mm-hmm. not, it's just, it's for me, it's always wanting to know what that process is and just understanding. So I'm really glad that we got to, that I got to be here, take over Joe's episode and talk about this with you. Now, for those who know you and the people who don't on the show, so we're going to play a little get to know you to get us started. And this is always the part that trips people up. I know, I'm waiting for <laughs> Jessica. Like, <laughs> That's always the part that scares people the most, even when I'm on the other end of it as well just the what's my favorite book I'm like what's the book I read do I really know myself (laughs) so we'll just play really quickly okay and hopefully we will have books at the end of it a whole list of books that we can add to the list (laughs) (laughs) so to start off with what is your favorite book at the moment oh Gosh, um, I've, I don't want to sort of talk about just psychology stuff, but I've actually just read a really good book by Chris Shears. So he's okay. a psychologist and, and so he goes around different topics around resilience and um, sort of love and looks at different topics. And yeah. um, there's another clinical and forensic psychologist, which I forgot her name. Oh, my God, this is terrible. But she talks about trauma. Yeah. Um, I've started rereading Atomic Habits because um, the writer for Atomic Habits is coming to Australia next week, I think. Oh, wow. And sometimes it's just even like, oh, how do I, like, I, I, I come along a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of questions that come into my mind sometimes through clinical practice. Mm-hmm. And um, recently one of my clients is saying, how do we build a habit? Isn't that 21-day thing? Like, so mm-hmm. sometimes I just go and, and um, I mean, side notes, I've got a two-year-old, so I, I'm often reading around what do I do in terms of parenting and, like, yeah. toilet training and, like, all these other sort yeah. of live things. So it's a good, um, very diverse sort of, yeah, set of books that you might find <laughs> in, so it's in my house. from parenting to self-help to... Yeah, finance as well. I love oh, yeah. finance. So I, I always think about the psychology aspect in finance yeah. and, um, yeah, I, um, yeah. We'll get to the podcast part of it, but yeah, yeah, definitely love reading and knowing more about that. I think for me, when I started reading Atomic Habits, the minute I stop, I feel like I have to start from the beginning again. Yeah. It's like a one day read. You have to spend Absolutely. the whole day reading it. Yeah. And I feel like it's one of those books that you can actually pick up again and again yeah. and again. Exactly. Yeah. And you're always taking something different from it. Yeah. So no, that's yeah. really cool. Um, how about a movie that you've recently enjoyed? I make a confession. I'm just not into movies i'm one of those really weird people but i can um think yeah. about more um so a i mean we were just talking about this before but um my dad's like a 
fanatic of movies. He would have watched every single movie, even though he would have known that it's a bad movie. So yeah. uh, I think I'm, I will confess I've got a bit of a PTSD out of watching too many new movies when um, I'm a child, since I was a child. But um, yeah, um, I do a lot of long haul travel. So um, I tend to watch everything afterwards. I'm looking forward to um, watching the Barbie movie once it's on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> I'll ask Qantas to put it on the plane. <laughs> Just be like, I'm requesting this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think a lot of the movies like, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's been lots of movies that I watch just that people be like, oh, didn't you watch the cinema? And I'm like, no, I just watch it on the plane. <laughs> Actually, it's the easiest way to watch it because it's like just you it's watching it. got and... nowhere to be, so yeah. I've, I'm forced to sort of do it. Yeah. So, but, yeah, unfortunately, no no favourite movies on my end. Okay, I will say the Barbie movie is worth watching. Yeah, so I've heard it, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, how about a podcast that you're listening to at the moment? So um, I love finance related stuff as okay. I was talking about so yeah. um I'll give a shout out to the Australian Finance Podcast um okay I love their podcasts they're very easy to understand um and I really like how they really blend in a lot of the well-being happiness aspect of it because mm -hmm. if you think about it money is such a common thing that we all have I mean we we all need money to survive if it can't make a difference in terms of experiences and so yeah I, I definitely yeah, I'm a bit of a anything that is finance related. Yeah. Um, I'll try to put my psychology hat to it. But yeah, love their mm -hmm. podcast. They're really, really good, despite the RAS group. Okay. I think the what the phrase that I hate the most is money doesn't bring happiness. And I'm like, that's yeah. people who have too much money that are able to say that. Yeah. And so one of the things that they talk about um is that, you know, you don't need that much money, but it's like what's the meaning and the values and yeah. A lot in psychology and particularly in one of the um, psychological therapies in acceptance and commitment therapy, we mm -hmm. talk a lot about values. Okay. So what's the value attached to it? How is this aligning with the life you want to live? So uh -oh. um, I think I was listening to it yesterday and they were talking about how, you know, buying maybe some um, Nando's chips or was it Nando's? It was another one. I think it was the snitch chips that they were saying that the snitch yeah. ones are the better ones. And I agree. They're really good. Yeah, I agree. And the grilled ones too. So they were saying yeah. how that could sort of be, you know, maybe spending $5 that might add up to your happiness in a bigger way rather than just getting like your usual coffee and not actually adding a value to it. Like what is that bringing? Or if you're going for a walk, you know, like today wasn't such a bad day. Like I've got a coffee on the way here. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm investing in sort of that welfare aspect. So, yeah, I like sort of anything that's got to do with well-being, psychology and finance. I'm a fan of that. Oh, wow. That's actually a very interesting way of sort of thinking about the value of different things. Yeah. I would rather not spend $5 on a train than um, and spend it on coffee instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't happen in that one. I know. <laughs> now, do you have a role model? Yeah, I do. Um, I'd have to say my dad is definitely my role model. I know it sounds very cliche, but um, I definitely admire my dad. My dad um, started basically with nothing. Mm -hmm. um, he, I think, Back in the day when they were renting that he set up like a little, he's a doctor, so he mm -hmm. set up like a little private practice and um, was like, oh, I got my first client. I was sort of seeing like one, two clients a week. And now, yeah, he's um, he's put too many fingers in too many pies. But, um, yeah, he does a lot of uh, 
his own business and private practice and mm-hmm. definitely someone that I've seen working extremely hard over the years. So uh, I'm very passionate and I think for me that's been um, definitely like the legacy that he's already living in me. Like yeah. just, you know, I'm, I feel for me in terms of my own values is I, I, I want to show passion in my work and mm-hmm. I do it when I lead people and when I, I work with clients. Um, so, yeah, definitely yeah. he would be the role model. That's a, that's a really that's a really cool role model. I think it's a, it's very different when you say your parents just because you you have to. Yeah. <laughs> but then when you say it because they actually taught you something, yeah. it's a different answer. Altogether. Yeah, and the legacy, as I said, I think yeah. to me, um, as human beings, I, I just think what's the legacy that I'm leaving? Yeah. And what what's influencing that legacy? It's passed down, which is, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Now to end off, do you have a course that has really inspired you? I recently completed through my workplace. I was very fortunate that I got funded to do these uh, providing feedback mm-hmm. um, course. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I feel like as human beings, we're daunted every time we try to give feedback. It's like, oh, my God, I'm going to hurt someone's feelings. How am I going to say this or that? And yeah. It actually was fantastic. It actually influenced me and, and detached me from feeling this pressure mm-hmm. of, oh, my God, I've got to give this feedback and really, like, dread it. Yeah. It really changed my approach into how I work with people and, again, really influencing my leadership in a very positive way. So mm-hmm. um, that was really, really good. It it yeah. was – it gave, like, a little formula. Um, and it just – yeah, it just made it feel so much easier because, as I was saying, I, I lead a, a, a team of clinicians and a lot of it working with people can't be – very, very exhausting in mm-hmm. how do you make the, you know, bring the best of people, but also sometimes you have to be very direct in giving that feedback. So, yeah, um, yeah, definitely that was a really good course. Yeah, I only give feedback if it's anonymous. <laughs> it will never be <laughs> my like, name attached don't. to it. Yeah. I'll never be like, get called up being like, can you explain this a little bit? I'm like, no, no I no, don't no. want to. <laughs> like, you did great. <laughs> so that's a really cool idea, sort of like a bit more critical than rather just worrying about hurting someone. Yeah, oh, I, I think, I mean, I've, I've been in a leadership role for close to five years mm-hmm. and I often worry and I do a lot of supervision for psychologists and other health professionals. Mm-hmm. And I always think like, oh, gosh, just telling people what they didn't do that well. And and actually it's just thinking more about how can you grow that person. Yeah. So I, I, I like to sort of put that positive aspect into it. But also at the same time, if you... I, I also think I've got the responsibility to tell people what they can do better mm-hmm. is how I say it though. <laughs> yeah. Like, you just got to make sure you're not yelling at them and make sure you're like being as positive and negative as balanced as totally. And And if you think about it, you will remember good feedback mm-hmm. and you will also remember really bad feedback True. because you'll feel like criticised, yeah. you'll start getting defensive. Yeah. So it's all about really... Yeah, having been able to separate and, and being able to sort of see how you can sort of inform and, and help that person grow and, and mm-hmm. show that care. Yeah. That's, again, really tied into values. You, you'll hear probably through this yeah. conversation that I'll, I'll talk about values a lot. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Exactly what we're talking about today, yeah. especially when it comes to being on the resilience mm. show, talking about being resilient. Now, I know that everyone has a very different perspective as to how resilience works in everyone's everyday life. Now, why do you think resilience is important in as a daily practice in our lives? 
you know how you were talking about um, the work you do with the parenting podcast? Mm-hmm. Yes. So we talk about it more in a developmental point of view. Mm-hmm. So when, I, when we talk about resilience and what I've seen over my clinical practice over the years is that people go like, I'm feeling too anxious or I'm using all this stuff. I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to feel this. Mm-hmm. And it's really that capacity to feel and tolerate and learn to manage yourself mm-hmm. that I don't think we get taught at school. And it's such an important skill. Yeah. I would love schools to actually take that as part of curriculum. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, there is sort of that emotional awareness. There is sort of like, oh, you're feeling sad, you're feeling blah, blah, blah. Mm. But what do you do to honour that space, basically? Yeah. So this is where I really think resilience, if you want to call it resilience, if you want to talk about it, emotional capacity, mm-hmm. um, that sort of emotional thermometer, as mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. is critical. It's really the work that we do in the mental health field, mm-hmm. um, whether you treat anxiety, whether you treat depression, whether you treat any disorder, mm-hmm. it goes back to actually what's my capacity to tolerate What's my capacity to feel? Mm-hmm. What do I do with this thing called feeling? So when you're talking about resilience, mm-hmm. and does it mean just being immune to sort of the stresses and sort of the adversity that we're facing? Or does it mean sort of bouncing back from something that's already happened? Great question. Mm. And so I'll go back to that part of anxiety, but it okay. could be anything, right? Yeah. So when I often see someone and I just have this sort of mem- clear memory of someone that I've just started seeing uh, for therapy, mm-hmm. this person was telling me, like, I want to stop feeling this anxious, please, and thank you. Mm-hmm. And I had to go and say, I, I hate to break in the news, but I don't know if I can sort of assist with taking away your anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> My client was like, What? Oh, no. <laughs> Isn't that, so what we talk about here in this part of life, take away the anxiety, the police and thank you, is mm-hmm. a very medical approach. Mm-hmm. If you think about how when you have a headache, you and I have a headache, I want to get a Panadol and just get rid of it, right? Yeah. Really the skill, I don't know if it's bouncing back, but again, I want to go back to this is about managing, sitting with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's something really crap happening in my life. What do I do with this? Mm-hmm. Do I dwell on it? How do I hold myself when I'm feeling pain? What do I need? Mm-hmm. We don't ask each other. Like I don't think we ask one another what do we need in moments of adversity or pain or crap. Mm-hmm. Can I say crap? Yeah, like, you can I'm say like, that. Yeah, oh. go for it. <laughs> um, we don't ask ourselves those things. Mm-hmm. We're often about what's next. Society puts a lot of pressure around well, this is the next thing, This is these are sort of the timeframes, these are sort of the milestones you need to reach, again, yeah. in a very developmental world. Mm-hmm. When are you going to start crawling? When are you going to start walking? When are you going to start jumping? When are you going to start sort of talking? Yeah. Um, when are you getting a degree? Uh, when are you getting the house? Are you going to get partnered? Are you going to have kids? Mm. So what's, the, what's next? What's next? Yeah. It's just immense amount of pressure for us as human beings. So it's, yeah. it's really that ability to really attuned to your needs, mm-hmm. that's really where the resilience comes from. It's that individual formula. I don't think there's sort of, again, in a, medi- a very medical approach, I think what all of us were expecting, and if you haven't had any sort of approach with talking therapy, 
Mm. People might think, oh, I'm just going to, it's like sort of seeing the doctor. They're going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go and put this in place and the problem's going to go away. Yeah. Actually, talking therapy works very differently and it's a very individualized process. Mm -hmm. And we go through, let's think about this story. You're telling me all these things. What's going on for you? Yeah. That, that, that process takes time. So that goes against the medical approach, but also what society's been telling us. Yeah. And we're so fast track and we have to go very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, therapy's the whole opposite. <laughs> Slow down is, is really bound. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I know I'm going around a lot, but, but going back to your original question, it is about bouncing back. Mm-hmm. It is about also not just bouncing back, but also holding yourself when you're not feeling great. Yeah. And w- what supports. And I mean, we'll talk about that probably oh, later yeah. on. But so what do you have in place and what do you need? And it's really about asking those hard questions when you're not feeling the best. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think like one of the things I hate the most is when people say one plan doesn't work out, you straight away have to go and find a plan B. And for me, like I I used to do that when I was younger. I used to be like, okay, if one degree didn't pan out the way I wanted it to go, if I wasn't going to be a teacher, I had to quickly find out what I'm going to do next year, mm-hmm. not knowing what I wanted to do, but I have to quickly pick a degree and study it the next year. And now like I'm sort of come to the point where like if one, I regret sort of jumping from one idea to another because I wish I'd taken like a year or some time to like really think about what I wanted to do. If education didn't work out for me, do I want to go straight into art? Do I want to go into nursing? Is there other areas that I feel like I can really be um, be passionate about? So you're talking about attuning into your needs, right? Yeah. Rather than rushing. So exactly. I love that because, yeah, there's this thing of, do I hold? And I always say to people, mm. and I always have to tell this to myself, yeah. <laughs> good decisions take time. True. It's like if, you know, there's always good but stuff about a job, about relationships. And, of course, if when you're not experiencing, when you're experiencing the not so great part of it, mm. there's this human reaction about I want to get out. Mm-hmm. I want to stop feeling this. I'm feeling very uncomfortable. Yeah. Get out, get out, get out. It's this avoidance aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just, oh, what is this about? And being really curious about it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I wonder what this is telling me. Oh, why am I feeling so uncomfortable? Oh, all right. <laughs> Can I sit with that? Can I start dipping my toe in the water here? So what you were saying makes so much sense is, do I need to rush into what's next and the next degree and then have these ridiculous hex deaths? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, can I actually tune into why 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 I'm not feeling happy about this degree? What would make difference? Yeah. How do I want? And you know, what I was talking about like my dad and legacy and like what I feel like I want to leave some legacy and I want to try to do it with my family and my clients and you know the people I'm around. Yeah. It's yeah. What what connects with purpose? really where we want to go and that's really yeah the I guess purpose of life (laughs) (laughs) so now like when it comes to addiction and resilience Mm -hmm. and we're talking about the resilience of like the idea of bouncing back or sort of figuring things out sometimes we do get trapped in it and sometimes we do find the need to find an addiction whether it's um 
going to the gym or substance use, like those kind of addictions can really be really impactful as to how long it takes for us to recover from things. What do we mean and how do we define what addiction actually is? Mm, As you were talking about it, I thought when you're talking about the gym or when you're talking about substances, Mm. we're talking about coping strategies. Yeah. Now, I don't like to label it as helpful and unhelpful. That's very traditional cognitive behavioural therapy uh, where it's very black and white, it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what society, again, tells us, like, it's either this way or that way, right? There's no great, there's no in-between. The more I sort of, how I practise with, you know, in my leadership role in with my clinical work and in my personal life as well is there's a lot of grey. There's mm-hmm. a lot in between. Mm-hmm. We need to sort of test that out perhaps. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, so I, I guess it's more around looking at the whole picture about behaviours. So as I said to you, okay, going to the gym might be a good thing, right? Yeah. But if I go to the gym every day, for hours, and I am neglecting my other needs. I'm not socialising with people. I'm too worried about what I'm eating. I'm mm. not living the life I want to live. Mm-hmm. That's when it becomes a problem and it becomes an addiction perhaps, right? Yeah. So it might be the same without with a substance. A lot of people actually start into, you know, through friends, through boredom, through like insert, you know, whatever's going on in your life. Yeah. And they might just do it as a one-off. And they might just go like, oh, that was fun. Mm. You know, it's not it's not impacting my day-to-day. Um, when it starts becoming of, hey, I'm not able to work. Hey, I'm actually not really caring about people around me. Hey, I'm sort of hiding it from other people. Mm. Hey, um, I've got a physical dependence on it. Yeah. Because, you know, we talk about substances, there is sort of that chemical component to it. Mm-hmm. That's when, and hey, I, I I actually rely on this to be able to bounce back. Mm-hmm. I'm not able to actually go on my day-to-day without this. This is when it becomes a bit of an issue perhaps. Yeah. But um, I'm a I'm a believer that everything in moderation. Yeah. Um, and having worked in the substance use uh, field for a while, um, there is obviously some some stuff around, um, you know, we, we, I don't I don't think anyone who works in substance use works in a framework where they go like is all or nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the goal for a lot of people might be actually I want to keep using, but I want it in a way that is not disrupting my day to day. Yeah. So. And what are the different types of addiction that sort of come to mind? Sure. Ooh. So, I mean, we can talk about it in an overall sort of lens into the psychological addiction yeah. and the physical addiction. So, okay. you know, when we talk around it and, and so, so I guess we're talking around substance use, substance dependence yeah. <laughs> and okay. then addiction per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I was talking about with substance use, it might be, hey, I had, you know, a joint with a friend and that was fun, but like that's it. Yeah. To, hey, I'm starting to build a habit of, uh, oh, it's time to have fun with my friends. So every weekend we're getting together and like we were sort of getting a joint and sort of maybe the sort of habit or uh, more the ritual, sorry, of I'm going to be rolling. I know a lot of people talk about mm-hmm. with cigarettes or joints or whatever, like, hey, the the ritual of rolling and like getting everything 
yeah. might be the appealing aspect. And um, and then, hey, I actually need this to get on my day-to-day. Okay. We talk also around the psychological aspect of it. So as I mm-hmm. said, the ritual of it, yeah. uh, um, the chasing of it. A lot of people, uh, particularly the legal drugs, there's this part of going to, you know, get it from the dealer. Yeah. That sort of, you know, incorporates okay. a lot of it. There is the chemical aspect and is the sort of physiological dependence mm-hmm. where is your building tolerance. So that means, hey, Dina, like we might have a joint. Yeah. <laughs> um, huh, this is not creating the same effect anymore. We might need another joint. And yeah. then you need more and more and more to sort of have the same effect. And mm-hmm. you're sort of building, yeah, that tolerance. And, um, and I guess it's sort of the other part of a conversation that once you build that tolerance and, you know, you tell me, oh, I'm going to maybe change from joints to alcohol. Yeah. Hey, I'm now drinking two bottles of wine. That's a fair bit. That's a fair bit of alcohol, let's yeah. face it. Um, I want to come, I want to just stop alcohol. We've had a lot of clients who call and say, I actually want to stop drinking. End of the story. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Um, they're not thinking about how physiologically dependent they are now yeah and that actually that's pretty unsafe (laughs) so we have to do a lot of education with people sometimes of have you thought about the side effects of stopping cold turkey because actually Mm. you're depending on a pretty large amount now so maybe let's talk about cutting down so that you don't have you know the shakes or you you know you might not have this this or this so yeah yeah and specifically i think when it comes to recovery the recovery process when you go from one I know a lot of people go from one addiction to another and can sort of like okay in order to stop smoking I'll do something that's really really healthy I'll go for a run every single day and then they get addicted to going for a run every single day and have that dependency and I've seen especially on TikTok I've seen a lot of people who are recovering from that (laughs) and their solution to stopping something is to get addictive addicted to another thing or to simply try to find something else that they can feel addicted to Um, and I think we're talking about this before we started recording as well when it came to like addictive personalities yes (laughs) so how how does that is that an actual thing where you do have addictive personality or is it just a mindset that people build off of okay my opinion about it yeah (laughs) is that that's basic I mean oh look I'm just very mindful about labels and what mm-hmm. people might put in. So okay. um, obviously within the world of psychology and psychiatry, there is the DSM, so the, mm-hmm. man, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Health Disorders. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if I look at it in a very black and white way, you know, you would tick some sort of, you know, criteria. And mm-hmm. if you meet X, Y, Z sort of symptoms, then you say, oh, you've got this diagnosis. Now, that can be incredibly helpful. So, you, you know, we can look at it and, and you know, we'll be able to see someone and say, you you have a substance use disorder. Yeah. Um, does that mean that you have an addictive personality? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, I like to think about it more in a sort of broader picture. Mm-hmm. And so... We were talking about this before we started recording and, and we'll obviously talk a lot more about trauma, but you and I can be exposed to the same thing. Mm-hmm. We might come from the same family perhaps, uh, hypothetically speaking, and, you know, you might 
develop a substance use mm -hmm. um, issue and mm -hmm. I might not. Yeah. Does that mean that, you know, what makes the difference of an addictive personality? So, you know, my, my experience over the years sometimes is that people might have put that label to themselves and say, I've got an addictive personality, end of the story, mm -hmm. don't tell me, like, I don't know if I can change. Yeah. And we know that sort of, I guess that's the downside of having a label. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people can sort of use it and, and sort of wrap themselves and say, oh, yeah. I can't change. And, and so a lot of the work in the substance use field that we do is working through that motivation and, mm -hmm. and sort of looking at ways that we can sort of, you know, change a bit of that narrative. Um, you know, I, I think about if, if I start unpacking that addictive personality, what is it? Is it environment? A mm -hmm. lot of it, it is. Is it a underlying mental health condition? A lot of times it is. Yeah. Because substance can be just a symptom and I'm now talking about it uh, for people who know about psychology in a very psychodynamic way so they talk about symptoms and the conscious and unconscious things yeah. and um, so there is that theory of you know substance comes as an you know it's just a symptom what is it really beneath and we were talking about you know emotions and resilience and all this stuff yeah so one could argue that actually how you cope with it and what, what are some of the mechanisms and things that you, how you sit with things, mm -hmm. how you feel that void. Yeah. A lot of people use substances to feel that void. Okay. What are we doing actually to, to learn to feel? Just, yeah, I think it's just such an important thing. No one's taught us how to, you know, sit with pain, to yeah. live life and learn to sort of feel things. That's, yeah. that's the real challenge. Some people might like to go to the gym all the time. And I guess it's sort of the moderation. I like to, I, I often talk about it in my clinical work in, in terms of we work through toolkits. Mm -hmm. And if you use the same thing all the time, yeah. it's going to wear off. You want to have a variety of things. And I guess it's learning to regulate because if you're just doing one thing and just being too obsessed with something, mm really not regulating it becomes more of a norm it becomes more of a rule yeah um gonna go back to values again but yeah. when we talk more on a values-based perspective and, and we talk about what adds up to your life mm -hmm. and what enhances life and what what you want to get out of it and meaning and purpose mm. that's when sort of i guess that flexible approach comes in and, and learning to find yeah different um strategies so mm -hmm. Again, sort of starting to get to know me. Yeah. I go around a lot, but um, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't say there's sort of this such thing as an addictive personality. Mm. I guess say. being very different to being mindful. Like if you do a mindful workout, it's very, very different. Or like a mindful, um, like talking with yourself, sort of digesting what situation you've dealt with. Mm. And I guess I think you were mentioning earlier, I don't think anyone wants to be uncomfortable. No one wants to go through that uncomfortable feeling of having to and dealing with emotions is an uncomfortable feeling that no one really wants to sit through. Correct. Correct. And like I do, like especially when it comes to dealing with things growing up or even dealing with your childhood trauma, no one wants to deal with the fact that they are still dealing with the things that they felt when they were seven years old or eight years old. Like no one wants to deal with that. So specifically when we come to substance use and substance abuse, are there 
contributing factors that sort of come in? I mean, we talked about trauma a little bit, but are there any other sort of factors that sort of come in when it comes to the need for substance use? Absolutely. So um, I remember when I was working in the prison system, one of the things we would do a um, drug and alcohol program, mm-hmm. uh, we would do a timeline and we would do like good events and bad events. Yeah. And then start mapping out what substances people started using. Oh, okay. And a lot of the times there was like, oh, you know, a friend introduced me to these or, oh, yada, yada, passed away or mm-hmm. actually um, I started having problems at school or, you know, and a, and a lot of the times it was like we're starting with the soft drugs, then we went into the hardcore drugs and yeah. back in the day sort of like, yeah, hardcore drugs and then offending and then lifestyle sort of, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so so look, there, there are a range of reasons and there are factors that may lead into substance use not necessarily it's not like a strict rule but Mm -hmm. um yeah um a lot of the times sort of childhood sort of adverse experiences or you know significant lifestyle sort of things can sort of lead into that um you know i'm sort of thinking uh, a lot of things can also start in more of a social experimenting um, aspect but then it's what is it becoming, when is it sort of starting to become a habit? When is it, what's the rituals around it? So yeah. there's a lot of the conversations of I might start using it with friends, someone then might sort of, you know, thinking more around, oh, I might be smoking something and then I'm going into injecting because someone injected me or like what okay. what is it? Or, you know, hey, uh, my parents split up and I couldn't find a way to cope with it. Or actually I had this really loving partner or I've lost my job. So we've had, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily need to think about the hardcore drugs, but I think alcohol is something that is so accessible. Yeah. Like there's a bottle shop everywhere. Yeah. So it's, Every it's, corner. It's part of the Australian culture, yeah. isn't it? So, um, you know, if, if, if I put sort of a classic example, it could be, hey, um, I'm finishing work and I'm going to the pub or I'm buying a bottle and I'm making dinner and I'm just having a drink because yeah. it feels really nice to just be able to cook. It make me feel, it might make me help to be more creative in my cooking. Yeah. Then I might not be realising that I'm going through a whole bottle after the night. Oh, I had a whole bottle by myself. Goodness me. Oh, I'm starting to have a lot of problems at work or I'm having some, you know, relationship issues or hey, yeah, I'm not feeling really good. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm feeling really stuck about change, blah, 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 blah. Then, hey, I've lost a job. What am I doing mm-hmm. to actually I'm chronically drinking from like AM, which yeah. is awful, but it does happen. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a whole range of factors, mm-hmm. um, long story short. It's not even like when it comes to it's not even a big trauma development. It could be just like, okay, I'm going to drink socially, going to drink with friends, and suddenly it's like, oh, it becomes a weekly ritual turned into a daily ritual. And so it's not even anything traumatic that sort of attends to substance use. Not necessarily. And I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes we think, and look, I, I want to be very clear that trauma is very linked to substance use. Yeah. And it might not be evident at the time we might get someone. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, as I said, I worked in the non-for-profit sector. So we get um, the, a funding from the department. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you or I had a substance use issue, we could call direct line. 
Yeah. And we would say, hey, I want to be transferred to my local agency. You can get free drug and alcohol support, which is fantastic. Yeah. They go through a whole list of questions. It's like an hour and a half assessment. I oh, feel wow. like it's such a commitment for yeah. people <laughs> to make it through. And so where I want to go with that is we get those assessments and if I read them sometimes, I go like, there's nothing really apparent that is making this person, oh, they might be stressed or, hey, they've lost a partner. Mm-hmm. But the more you go into it, there might be some early sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we do get a lot of people that's like, oh, yeah, this happened like, you know, ages ago and like, oh, yeah, whatever. And it's like, oh, you're telling me like you had this sort of trauma and like if you were having egg and toast for breakfast. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things of why I like this field is you could be seeing, you know, the person who is on public housing or homeless mm. to a, you know, quite high up executive person who's struggling with their drinking. And it gets me back to substance use is actually experienced by every level of society. Mm-hmm. So you, you know how you were studying, like you haven't been directly or you haven't had sort of that direct influence, you know, luckily, uh, of someone struggling with substance use. Yeah. You would still be exposed to it through seeing people, you know, mm-hmm. homeless or, yeah. you know, seeing people misbehaving if you were going out, like, yeah. you know, being substance affected. And so, yeah, it's 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 really that sort of, level of impact perhaps yeah. that substances can have. You never really see it until the final end or the final leg Correct. or like after because I don't think it's noticeable in a lot of people as well. I think Correct. it's another thing until you suddenly realise that there that there is a problem. You don't really see it as it's developing. People can hide it pretty well yeah. and I guess this is where I was going with the whole, oh, I'm buying alcohol after work, like, oh, yeah. like, oh, I'm just having a glass. Yeah. And then it's like actually that glass is becoming like a bottle. Yeah. Um, I've had clients over the years where the partner sort of found bottles of alcohol through the house and they're mm. like, oh, my God, like what's going on here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I guess it's sort of like when – there's a whole other sort of <laughs> segment, but it's um, we've seen the impact of alcohol or substances in relationships because mm-hmm. there's that sense of trust. Yeah. It's that sense of shame, guilt. Mm-hmm. If you think about shame and guilt, these are things that are not just like, oh, I started drinking and I'm experiencing shame and guilt. They're probably early experiences of shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. But the symptom, <laughs> going back to what I was talking about yeah. before, is different. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So when it comes to managing, managing the things, managing the situations, how should people find ways to handle the triggers that remind them of traumatic experiences without turning to the use of substance? Guess what we would be going back to in terms of managing is what can I identify the trigger first of all? Yeah. Because a lot of people don't. Yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> a lot of people just because they're so traumatized, they just keep getting, you know, exposed over and over. Mm-hmm. And I guess we talk about the impact that sort of being re-traumatised and, and mm. retail. So a lot of people who go through trauma, I'm not saying everyone, and I want to put a disclaimer, but a lot of the people that we see, they go and talk about their trauma. Mm-hmm. Like 
they just have what I would say verbal diarrhea. Yeah. And we actually, one of the first things we go in, in terms of what what is really trauma-informed care is to say to people, I really appreciate your sharing this with me. We just met five minutes ago. <laughs> so it tells you a lot about boundaries, doesn't yeah. it? And it tells you like, oh, my God, this person's like sharing like everything that's happened to them. Yeah. I say like, I really care. And then this is obviously very important for you. Mm. I just wonder how many times you've said this because what tends to happen in terms of the regulation, and that's how they regulate, Yeah, is they'll tell the whole story. They'll feel better for like, you know, an hour or so. Mm. Or, I mean, I'm probably exaggerating, not an hour, probably a little bit longer. And then they'll go back into, I'm feeling all this distress again. Oh my God, I need to sort of just put it out. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not resolving the issue. It's actually just re traumatizing people. And we're sort of going this sort of never ending, yeah. being that hamster in sort of that sort of, you know, running wheel. Yeah. Um, so part of it, what we do in, in a lot of the therapy space mm-hmm. is, is really showing people the sort of the principles of trauma informed care. Yeah. So that sense of collaboration, that sense of empowerment. Safety, safety is paramount in anything that is trauma related. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people that um, start in the trauma or working with trauma, they would think, and, and clients too, they'll say, I need to get rid of this trauma stuff. Yeah. You need to help me to sort this trauma stuff out. Mm-hmm. Now, we know not necessarily everyone who has experienced trauma needs to process it. Yeah. So you know how we were going about we are exposed to same things and you might develop PTSD and I might not. Yeah. You might sort of say, I just need to find a way that I can safely regulate mm-hmm. and I might need to find ways that I can be more attuned to my needs. Mm-hmm. So that's where we work around stabilising people. Okay. So that's sort of part of what we would call like the phase one of it. Mm-hmm. So... It's, it's sort of going like, we're not saying it hasn't happened. Yeah. It has happened and it's informed and it's where I am. Yeah. How do I integrate into the day-to-day? How do I live with this in a way? Mm-hmm. Um, and look, in more of a single event, single trauma stuff, that, that can be very useful. Yeah. There's a lot of new wave stuff that's going on, which is very, very exciting. Um, so EMDR, so sort of eye movement. Okay. Um, tends to be one of the very promising um, therapies Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually been recognised recently by Medicare. Well, not that recently, but it's been reasonably recent uh, Mm -hmm. recognised by Medicare. So at the moment there's a lot of mental health professionals that are being trained in in, in EMDR. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, what they talk about in EMDR is that it's, it's, it's not a. It's not actually a talking therapy. It's more of like this eye movement. Basically, oh. goes through a protocol. Um, I want to put the disclaimer. I'm not trained in it. I'm just very interested. As, yeah. as I see, uh, I've got a couple of clinicians in in my team that they're trained, mm-hmm. and it's incredibly effective. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Okay. So, th- so there's obviously d- different ways that you can sort of work in regulating you know if if you've experienced trauma like where to which was the original question you know um it's really around the resourcing Mm -hmm. it's really around stabilizing so that's that's one of the first things that we do with people yeah um is is really looking about how do you cope Mm -hmm. what are some of the very you know this the sort of self-destructive stuff that you might be engaging in 
mm-hmm. which tends to be substance use, which might be self-harm, which might be other things, you know. Yeah. So where where to from here? How can we work a little bit on your self-talk? How can we work around your sense of self-efficacy? Mm-hmm. This idea that actually you've got this, you might not feel like you do, but let's look around how how have you dealt with adversity in the past? Yeah. Particularly with clients who've been in and out of substance use, I just go like, oh, you've been abstinent like, you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. What worked back in the day? Let's do some sort of digging. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, yeah, that would be one of the first things to sort of look into. I think it's fair, like I when you're talking about it, especially looking into the fact that people love to keep talking about it and re-traumatising I sort of reminded me of like a lot of comedians as well, where they love to use like their own trauma as anecdotes for stories and sort of bringing that up, like the emotional effect that must have on them sort of just being reminded or reminding themselves of something that happened. Like, I can't even imagine how I would hate to keep talking about the stuff that you face when you're growing up or face like from a friend or heartbreak or anything like that. You keep reminding yourself of it. And it's interesting when you say other ways of therapy that just don't involve talking at all. Because I know me, I love, especially on this show and on my shows, I love to talk about um, childhood sort of stories and bring that up again. And it's like you never really deal with it. And I started therapy, I think, a couple, a year and a half ago now. And just talking about it is, finding ways to just deal with it in other ways which is really interesting like being creative and finding other ways to not really have to keep bringing it up in social conversations up again and finding ways to deal with that so it's nice that there are other options for a lot of people who don't really want to end up being that person that brings it up in conversations constantly totally and (laughs) and you know um if you think about it we obviously want to go through stuff Mm-hmm. all the over and over yeah. why i could have changed something so so we know um for people who have experienced trauma is that sense of helplessness and hopelessness yeah oh i could have done something different oh what about if i had done and and so this is where i think as i was saying stabilizing is is sort of not like hey this happened we're not going to change that unfortunately yeah yeah okay how do we integrate it into who you are and who you want to be mm-hmm. So this is where a lot of the narrative needs to change of it's great that we are aware of, you know, the impact of this and yeah. what has happened. This has a place. Yeah. Where do we move forward? And and so I I am very aligned in an acceptance and commitment therapy approach. Mm-hmm. So it's not around what's good, what's bad, you know. There's, there's lots of thoughts. We yeah. experience a lot of thoughts from the moment you and I wake up. Mm-hmm. Our brains are producing like a gazillion thoughts. True, yeah. You know, it's like, am I, am I, am I running late? What am I going to have for breakfast? Oh my god, have I, have I packed everything? Uh, I need to go and drop my child. Uh, oh my god, he's been a freaking pain. Okay, um, how am I going to get him out of the house? All oh, right, what am I going to tell my boss about X, Y, Z? Oh, I've got yeah. this meeting. So, I guess the point is, mm-hmm. do you engage in every single thought you have? Mm, that's true because otherwise it's just so exhausting yeah so um part of a lot of the stuff that i work with my clients in this approach is yes the brain's a thought producing machine Mm -hmm. but 
aligns with your sense of purpose and your values and let's do some work around your personal values. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about, oh, you know, good or bad, as I said. Mm. Um, it's about how do I learn to sort of step back sometimes when I need to. Yeah. Uh, how is this aligning with my sense of purpose? How is this in how how this is adding up to my life basically? And mm-hmm. how do I learn to manage myself mm-hmm. and, and live for aligned to those things that are important to me? Okay. And how can people build a strong support system? I think especially outside of therapy, mm. that sort of just motivates them along that journey to handle the substance use but also handle the trauma that sort of could be attached to that? Such a difficult one, I must say, because I just want to acknowledge that a lot of people who experience substance use have challenges in their family dynamics. Mm -hmm. So it might not feel very natural for me to say, oh, they just need to have family around them because I know through experiences through my clinical and personal experience from, you know, friends and other people that I know, there's this wave. And and as I said, you know, uh, before becoming um, a line manager, I I work with family members. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it was like I've gone through these sort of waves of it's going to get better, it's gotten worse and like anxiety and stress and the impact that has on people. So a lot of people would opt to stay away from that person. So that yeah. creates a significant challenge in terms of building connections and resources. Mm-hmm. But there are great resources for people. So um, Smart Recovery is a fantastic group. So mm-hmm. with Smart, um, if you go onto Smart Recovery Australia, mm-hmm. uh, you could get onto any group face-to-face or virtual. So basically, I mean, we used to run a group back in the day, but we even had people from the US joining our groups. Oh, wow. It was just fabulous. Yeah. So um, is a uh, methodology um, evidence-based they work on what is cognitive behavioural and motivational interviewing. So mm-hmm. a lot in the substance use field, we, we work, as I said, in, in terms of enhancing motivation and and really working into establishing goals and yeah. all of this. Um, so they have even like worksheets and, and it's really great. So it's, um, it's directed by people who would come and say, I've got this problem mm-hmm. uh, and they would have a facilitator who would be trained, yeah. uh, sometimes peers, um, and then they would be running into, let's brainstorm together, let's use some of these principles in mm-hmm. what are you taking away from it? So the idea is if I go and say, hey, I'm worried that I've got a party and I haven't drunk like a whole month and um, there's going to be lots of opportunities for me to drink. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to approach this party. Okay. Uh, we had that actually once in a group mm-hmm. and the person, I think, the person was very happy and and they would um the group sort of said oh what about putting pouring some lemon lime and bitters in like a wine glass people don't need to know that you're not having alcohol it's and that way hard. you don't feel actually like um i remember back um this person was talking about feeling socially sort of weird if yeah. there was sort of everyone was going to be drinking like, what am i going to do with that mm. um 
and we used to have lots of regulars and that person came back the week after. I was like, that was actually really good. I didn't feel out of place. I felt like I could be myself and actually yeah. I was able to observe other people mm-hmm. in that environment. So, um, so yeah, groups are great. Yeah. Uh, I cannot stress. Uh, and I think just more of those therapeutic groups because you get people who are like-minded and they might be on that same path of actually mm-hmm. I want to change. I just want to have a good network. And um, yeah. we did have like people who would actually connect after the group. Oh, wow. Um, there's lots of options, I guess, in like the community space where um, there are groups, uh, as as we were talking about, you know, with substance use comes mental health and mm-hmm. comes other challenges. Um, I don't think we ever see someone with just a substance use issue. <laughs> this is why. And it's not just yeah. trauma. I mean, there's a whole range of presentations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot of... Um, things that we can bring in terms of the social inclusion and volunteering and mm-hmm. like other opportunities. Um, I think it's really around more looking at what fits that person yep. and what are their interests and what aligns. And, and so that would be a lot of the conversation we would be having in the therapy space mm-hmm. of you need, I always talk about formal and informal supports. So I might be your formal support, your yeah. GP might be your other formal support. That is great. We need to balance that out. Mm-hmm. And the risk sometimes is that, we, you know, we might have people who might be filling out their calendar with all these sort of appointments and yeah. it's like, well, what's outside of, you know, I guess this is where I really connect with the purpose aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I think especially when it like talking about, different groups that you can join. And I love the idea of sort of having the lemon lime bitters and a glass <laughs> and just sort of hiding the back. It's I not f- bad. Because <laughs> it's like not everyone needs to know as well. And that's another thing. And I, everyone's sort of, I think at this day and age, everyone's always in each other's business and needing to know things. And it's boundaries, isn't it? Yeah. So as I was talking about this client who, you know, might sort of vomit their trauma and they had just met you five minutes ago. Mm have the choice to determine what you share with people and exactly. when you start sharing more or less with people yeah is is actually okay to say this doesn't feel safe if i disclose that i'm you know for example i mean i know we passed dry july but some people might want to do dry july and they might yeah. you know go to a work function and, and people they might get peer pressure yeah. And they know like, hey, if I get peer pressure, I'm just absolutely gonna fail. Yeah. So so it's it's I think it goes I think a lot of it has to go with boundaries too. Mm-hmm. That pressure, like what feels right. And it's really about I think a lot of the work is what 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 do I need? What feels okay for me? Yeah. Yeah. I think especially because I'm I don't drink and I go to parties where a lot of people do drink, I end up being the sober driver. I was going to say, always a designated yeah, driver. Exactly, every single time. And I'm so good with that. But it's just like I used to have a group of friends where mm. there would be that, oh, you know, no one would know if you had a drink. Because in my family, my family don't drink. Okay. We don't sort of believe in that. Did you drinking. get judged? Can I ask you? Oh, yeah. 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 I get I get asked too many questions. And, and I was like, I just don't drink. And like, sometimes you might feel, and part of why I ask you is, you might not feel like wanting to give an explanation. No. You might just go and say, it's none of your freaking business. Yeah. But I can't say that because this would be, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like I had to stop being friends with that group to a point because it was like constantly being like, you know, no one will know. Your family won't know if you had a drink. I'm like, 
I will know. That's the peak. That's the point. And I'm hearing that then this fam, like this friend group, was not aligning with your values and not what matters to you. Exactly. So if we go back to that, it's yeah. really sometimes we feel like we have this social pressure of like this is where we need to be and this is where we belong and this is what we need to do yeah actually we don't yeah we we choose and we have a choice we've got a choice whether we want to use xyz how much we want to use it how long for what's the purpose around it um yeah there's lots of ideas about how we should live our life i hate this sort of term should you are the only person who determines that. There's exactly. lots of information and sometimes drop the background noise. Yeah. Really engaging what's important. Yeah. So, yeah. So we've heard a lot about the professional practices that sort of takes place. I would love to know some of your personal practices. <laughs> now, do you have a practice that you put in place to improve your own resilience? <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, it's um. Do you know, I, I probably don't do it as often, mm. but I still do, so it'll count. Yeah. Um. I'm, from that feedback workshop that I was talking about, okay. I, I actually got that away, and um, they were talking about why it's hard to give feedback because mm-hmm. we're thinking that we need to sort of criticize and give something bad, and then people tend to to be defensive and that we talk about it more in an outcome space rather than a skills and strength space. Yeah. So this person actually gave us an exercise of thinking about on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I did it for a month and then I've been doing it like not as often, but I do it on a weekly basis. So it sort of counts. Yeah. Um, But it's basically at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. I think about what I've done Mm-hmm. And I um, put it in my calendar, so I put it as a private appointment. No one knows what I'm doing with my time because um, obviously I've got a lot of stuff for looking at my calendar and my boss too. So um, yeah, I go through uh, what did I do in the day and what were three skills and three strengths that I brought to the oh, work. Wow. Okay. It was very hard to think about it. Like yeah. I remember <laughs> the first week I was like, um, I um, – I had a look at some client assessments and I matched them with what I thought it was the right clinician. Yeah. Um, I dealt with like a disgruntled client over the phone or uh, I had yeah. a challenge with a staff member and I was like, I don't know what skills and strengths because we tend to just think about the bad stuff or what I could have done better. Yeah. So um, that that has been really life-changing because um, um I'm quite a perfectionist mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've got very high standards, um, more about me. But, um, yeah, so so really softening how I talk to myself mm. has had a profound influence in how I talk and what I see in others. Yeah. So if I'm sort of struggling with a conversation, I would actually try to t- think about what, I, what I've noticed is then it, I've gone to, oh, really care about this I can see why this is so important Mm -hmm. and then I'll go like oh also I've noticed this yeah (laughs) and what are we doing about it and it's just been so so good so um you know when we talk around resilience I'm a strong believer that self-talk has a lot to do with how you manage yourself as well so um yeah that's something I've I've been doing and and yeah I've noticed a huge I mean I'm not perfect by any means Mm. But it's, it's just become a lot easier to really own yeah. what I bring. Yeah. 
And um, even just recently, like I remember having this conversation with my boss that I said, I'm, I'm really efficient at my job. I'm really good at this. And yeah. I don't know about you, but it, it just I think it's like women in general, we just don't own it very well. I see men actually, oh, yeah. I don't want to generalise, I mean, by all means, but I do see that men tend to sell themselves a little bit better than women do. Yeah. And now I'm like, no, actually, yeah, I do this very well. Or, oh, I'm actually very good at this. So I bring this to the table. So really own, owning myself a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. I think it's hard. It's easy to sort of see the positives in someone else, but see yeah. the positives in what you bring yeah. is very different. Yeah. It's a very different. It takes so much longer. I think that's why the always interviews for me, job interviews are the biggest thing because it's like, yeah. how do I sell myself without sounding obnoxious? Yeah. But then you see so many other people, they're like, just over talking themselves and <laughs> over hyping themselves up yeah. and I'm like that's cool but I don't know how to do that for me so that seems like a really great way mm. to sort of see it's something simple and also like putting time on yourself yeah like I I think life is short mm-hmm. but it's what do you do with it yeah and and how do you think that that has brought an impact to your daily practices and your sort of understanding into how your life is I think I have better perspective, mm-hmm. as I said, with when I'm giving feedback to other people. Like yeah. I just try to look at like, oh, they, they do this well. Probably they mean this way yeah. rather than assuming the worst of people. Yeah. Um, but I think it also connects me more with what's important to me. And and then um, I tend to also, as another sort of side practice, um, I'm trying to do like an every first of the month. Um, okay. I mean, I don't like to sort of set goals, but just just think about what, what is working for me? Mm-hmm. What what are some of the things that I'm doing at the moment that are not serving to my life? Yeah. Um, and then what do I feel like I want to try mm-hmm. and give myself the opportunity rather than sometimes we go into like, oh, it's just the same, the same, the same. Yeah. So can I challenge myself? Can I do? So, so I think just that idea sometimes of giving that time to think about myself. Yeah. Um, working in a sort of with people very good at telling people what to do and like what they need to take care of themselves and then um yeah over the years I've learned to sort of prioritize myself a little bit better particularly as I juggle different things in my life so So self-care is important yeah yeah absolutely and even you know and and I think sometimes we think about self-care as a I'm going to have a massage and I'm going to go and do something very indulgent yeah and actually is about sustainability. So I'm very passionate and I always drill on about sustainability in practice. Mm. So it's how do I keep myself functioning in yep. a way that feels okay. To make sure all aspects are balanced. Yeah, as much and as you're you- never going to get the right balance, but yeah. is when it, how is, like, do I feel aligned or is it something feeling out of whack? Yeah. And what is it? And I need to, what do I need? You know, I was talking about that before. We don't often ask ourselves that question. No, so, yeah. Yeah. Now, this leads us into the last section, which is the open mic. It sort of gives you a chance to share something that you would love our audience to know. It could be talking about some of the practices that you do or some of the work that you're doing that you would love to give some recognition to. So in like the minute or so that we have left, (laughs) I would love to just give you the floor. Oh, this is really hard. I haven't thought about these. Um... You know, we're talking about that developmental Mm -hmm. aspect and and I guess one of the things that I'm very passionate about is um, thinking about it in like things in an attachment lens. 
Okay. So, um, I, I, you know, as we've spoken about trauma and substances, a lot of it has to do with our early experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I may or may have not confessed that I've got a little person at home and I often think about yeah. what do I do in, in sort of influencing those early experiences and it's really attuning to, you know, those experiences that, you know, um, if he's upset, yeah. what is it? Rather than getting like, oh, my God, stop feeling that way. Yeah. Um, I might sort of have to also deal with my own frustration around yeah. things. And and, yeah. and look, I think sometimes, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I like to think a lot around attachment. Like I often think about it in just my day-to-day life, my mm-hmm. clinical life. Yeah. Um, how... Yeah, really attuning to yourself, attuning to others, uh, really being there for people mm-hmm. can make such a long-lasting influence. So, um, yeah, I, I think as a takeaway, if people want to read more about attachment. I mean, there's yeah. four types of attachments and so on. But, um, yeah, just, just thinking about it more of what is beneath just a behaviour. It's mm-hmm. not just like, oh, I'm annoyed because of blah. Like, what is it? So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's... I think attachment is such a big thing and it's such a big way of sort of understanding yourself as well. Like yeah. what your attachment style is, what totally. your, um, leads into really well with like parenting styles, what you, how you were raised and how that sort of affects your own parent. And I'm diving into my parenting lens now. Oh, no, so totally. I, I think it's, it's, and, and if we think about today's topic, yeah. A lot of it, because of early experiences, is that intergenerational stuff. True. And so then we talk about intergenerational trauma. Yeah. And what are we doing to break some of the cycles and, yeah. you know, yeah, just. It's a big thing. Yeah. It's a big topic. It's huge. I mean, it might be another conversation. Oh, yeah, 100%. But, but yeah, um, yeah, sometimes I just think about what are some of the little things that we might be doing on a day-to-day mm-hmm. that would have a long-lasting impact yeah. for us and yeah. for people around us. So, Well, that's yeah. a perfect way to sort of end yeah. the show. <laughs> sort of like the biggest like sum up of yeah. what we're talking about today. Yeah. So thank you so much, Sylvia, for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Dina. If there is a way that audience would like to get in contact with you or even find out a little bit more about what your non-for-profit practices are, is there a way that they are able to find out a bit more? Sure. So, look, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn and I'm very happy to have a conversation with Sylvia Bialante um, mm-hmm. and you'll be able to, yeah, get to know more about what I do. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you all and Joe will see you all in the next episode. <laughs> you have been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna, thanks for tuning in.